This is Local Switchboard NYC, a women-led audio collective. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jordan Gosporé. We're here to bring you news on a human scale. News that reminds us that big stories often start small. News that keeps us connected. On today's show, eulogizing a childhood home in Greenwich Village. In our new series, Lost Spaces. 526 Hudson Street is the last remaining brownstone on the block between West 10th and Hudson Street. And we remember another lost space in New York City, the historic Roosevelt Hotel, which closed its doors in December. You know, there's a very grand multi-story lobby that really gave you a feeling when you walked in that you were in a very special place. We end the show with the news from the neighborhoods. That's all coming up on Local Switchboard NYC. Mason Bindewald grew up in Greenwich Village, attended the High School of Performing Arts with Jennifer Aniston, and eventually wound up in California with his family. But he imagined his childhood home at 526 Hudson Street as an anchor to the city and began an ambitious renovation a few years ago. The pandemic, however, changed all that. The building is now on the market. Local switchboard Sarah Montague, who lived there for 17 years, asked Bindewald to share his memories. Mason Bindewald is a slight, elegant man given to natty baseball caps and playful athletic shoes. Like Kipling's Elephant's Child, he is full of sociable curiosity, which has resulted in a compendious knowledge of Greenwich Village history. He is also my former landlord. I met with Mason in the stripped-down parlor room of his mid-19th century townhouse. 526 Hudson Street is the last remaining brownstone on the block between West 10th and Hudson Street. Realtors today refer to it as a townhouse. My parents bought the building in 1968 from Mrs. Monday was her name. And my dad had a storefront across the street and I had just been born and she saw how hard he was working and actually sold it to my parents basically with a handshake. They bought it for $80,000, which was a king's ransom. And they did not have anywhere near the down payment for that and had to borrow money from my mom's mom. And the history going back was built in 1832. It was all cobblestone out in front. There was no trees. There were train tracks. And this was a pretty rough side of town back then. And even when we bought it in 1968, and I grew up in the 70s, it was um, very different from what Greenwich Village or the West Village is today. This was a tailor shop at one point. It was a barber shop downstairs. I have an old picture that the New York amateur photography club took in 1895 and it's got three little boys out in front in suits with rudimentary toys hats on and our stoop we had a a high stoop as they call it back then that's what the original front looked like and it says baths 10 cents and today I think about the history of this building and that we've owned it for 52 years and that doesn't seem like so long all of a sudden to me because this building has been here for a couple generations before us, and it'll go on to live with some other generations. 
The memories in this house, so many of them have to do with how it felt and looked. My dad was born and raised in Montana as a cowboy and a farmer. He literally rode to school on a horse to and from. He was the youngest of 10, the only one to go to college, and the only one who traveled east, a self-proclaimed artist. But the home he created here in this space was a welcoming, homey environment that had all the trappings of anything out of a Hallmark card that you could imagine, and a Charles Dickens book. Wood-burning fireplace, leaded glass shades, oriental rugs, a big, deep mantelpiece, antiques everywhere, because my dad was an antique dealer. His antique store across the street, which is now the cowgirl, was called the Village Stripper Antique Store. And he sold roll-top desks and Tiffany shades and jukeboxes. And so he had bits and pieces of that throughout the entire house. And over the years, it just kept growing. Looking back on this, I recognize how incredibly fortunate I was to be surrounded by the culture and the people and to have a space where we could entertain. So we had a big dining room table by certainly by Manhattan standards. And we would entertain people that my dad would bring home that uh, found their way to the village and wandered into his antique store. John Phillips of the Mamas and Papas. I remember pleading with him to sing Monday, Monday in the backyard. And he said, only if you sing it with me. Ed Koch stood right over here for a fundraiser back in the 70s when he was running for office. And we've just had so many talented people live here, visit here, entertain here. And it was always like an open door kind of feeling. Every single one of my friends talks about the memories of having spent part of their childhood at our place. They were always welcome for dinner. My dad would often put my friends to work. <laughs> when my parents bought the place in 68, all of a sudden they became landlords and you know, rents back then were like $80. They decided to do a renovation, which I believe began in the 70s. And while they did the renovation, we lived in the basement, which was still then just an unfinished basement. There was very much a Manhattan bohemian feel to our living conditions. And there was a spiral staircase, so two different worlds, upstairs and downstairs. So my first memories of the village were in the 70s when I was you know, starting to gain memories. My world consisted of between here and Abington Square Park, where I'd meet my friend who lived on 11th Street. We'd play, of course, way before cell phones. We were told to be home by dinner time before dark. This whole area was my playground, my dad's store, my house, the Sazerac house, which is now the Bayard house, which I believe is also left, but on the corner of Charles and Hudson was where my dad went uh, for a drink after work. And it was a very small village, and we knew everybody who lived here. It really had this community feeling that is still here today. It's shifted. You have to have a lot more money to live here than you used to. This is just after Dylan had become famous. And there's a famous photo of him that's actually out in front of this house, or our house is in the background. Uh, with him with a tire. It really does capture a moment in time. You look at that picture, which I have framed at home, and you can see how this tire that he has was probably just laying in the street, for instance, which is kind of crazy to think about now. 
and there's trash everywhere and this building's pretty battered and there's what's now a huge apartment building next to us was the Dover Garage, which was used for the Sunshine Cab Corporation in the sitcom Taxi. This block has a lot of history. Monday, Monday, so good to me. Monday morning, it was all I hoped it would be. Mason did a wonderful job of recreating a magic childhood in an unlikely setting, but the spirit of buildings resides in their bones. So I asked for a tour. We're on the parlor floor, which was where we lived and entertained growing up. And we had a lot of space compared to most people in New York. It was a tremendous amount of space. Then we had another staircase from the parlor going up to the second floor, which led to the smallest apartment in our building. That was then my first apartment. My parents ended up in a, a separation, but lived in the house together. And I was, I think, 16 or 17, so I moved upstairs. So a very New York story. Friends still marvel today that uh, I had my own apartment because it had its own entrance to the public hallway uh, while I was still in high school, which kind of blows my mind too. So we had this big kitchen over here to the right. We had a big table here. And we had this lovely yard, you know, a private yard in New York is also pretty special. I remember days being out there, drag in a cardboard refrigerator box and just turn that into uh, weeks and weeks of play until literally like it rained and destroyed the box. We'd cut holes in it and turn it into a fort, a tree house, a pirate ship. And um, I can even remember convincing my parents to let me camp out there and sleep. I don't think I made it through the night, but the idea that I could sleep outside in that box was so was so exciting. I still remember pulling up shards of pottery and finding a bottle and uh, maybe even like a salt and pepper shaker and my imagination just going crazy, like thinking of pirate's treasure. And there is a secret compartment underneath the garden, which I'm going to take you to. There's a certain Edgar Allan Poe-ish quality here, too. A hundred percent. It's a very small space. As a kid, this was uh, an enormous space in my mind, and it expanded my mind in terms of my imagination of what could have happened down here. You say Edgar Allan Poe, the cast of Amontillado. I spent hours down here, I think, playing with friends and um, just imagining you're on a ship in the hall. It's pretty cool. So there's some old graffiti up on the wall. And it's a vaulted ceiling. And I remember a smokestack in the garden that came out of here. So even though we call it a wine cellar, I'm pretty sure, and there's lots of conversations around this, that this was either a smokehouse, a root cellar. My mom was convinced it was part of the Underground Railroad. It's just a neat, special space. Is this piping or ceramic? These things that look like a kind of honeycomb. So this is why we called it the wine cellar, and my dad installed those. So this was technically my first apartment ever. This is an original deed to the house from 1868. And I don't know where my father got that, but he had it framed and we used to have it on the wall. I always liked the stairway. We're back in the public hallway and you can hear the squeaking of the stairs because they're the original ones. 
they're formidable, like they're big beefy pieces of very um, pleasing wood, round caps on the end that have been banged up and polished and repolished, dark wood, and you know, just fixed <laughs> a million times. It really does make you feel something when you walk through a building this old. And I recognize even though my family's had it for 50, two years is that there was many other stories and families and generations that had their own stories here. The building represents my family. I don't know how else to say it. It's where we grew up. It's where my father died. The building meant so much more than any financial gain could ever mean. Here's an old friend. Yes. I am going to take some small things with us. And you're touching the door knocker. It's a brass door knocker, and there was a time where there was no buzzers. And you would come up the stairs, and you would knock on somebody's door that way. And this one, on Sarah's old apartment, is appropriately so, William Shakespeare. So this apartment is a front apartment on Hudson Street, and most notable resident for a long time was Terry Roach of the Roach Sisters, a pretty famous a cappella group. They used to sing Christmas carols, the three of them, throughout Greenwich Village, as well as have some very popular albums out. And I was fascinated, and she was pretty, and her sisters were pretty, and that was really fun to have somebody famous and cool living in the building. This kitchen is like a little galley, like truly like a galley you'd find on a ship. It's got all this wood paneling and it's very tight and it's right up against a window that looks onto your fire escape and out onto the street. And as a kid, I just thought this would be such an incredible apartment to have someday where you can open up this window and be right out there in the street with all the excitement while you're in your kitchen cooking, sitting with a friend out there and, and looking down at all the life and traffic and excitement going on below us. And this beam was taken from the main floor from one of the rafters, old nail, rusted nail spots and some actual nails still in it and knots. And it's an incredible piece of wood just have as a modest mantelpiece and a story piece. I've been here for almost eight months now in quite a bit of isolation. And so it's given me a lot of time to reflect on the building and my life and my family and my father who's long gone now. But this is where it all started. This is where I grew up. This is where I found my footing, who I was. Many of the basic tenets of what I lived by were forged here as a child. And so coming back and spending this time by myself thinking through a lot of those moments in my childhood has been incredible. I still live in the village, and I still often pass by 526. But now, I feel I know it inside out. And it's nice to think that I am one of the layers of life that the new owners will inherit. And after hearing Mason's story about Terry Roach, I tracked her down and wrote to ask if she remembered her time at 526. I got back an immediate warm reply. She'd been made to feel very welcome. Not every landlord is keen to have a singer in the building. And she sent me a song. I live in one small room in New York City. Lately, I'm afraid. 
local switchboard NYC. I'm Sarah Moore. Manhattan's Roosevelt Hotel survived the Great Depression and World War II, but it couldn't survive the COVID-19 pandemic. I spent the night at the historic hotel before it closed its doors in December and spoke with Pulitzer Prize-winning architecture critic Paul Goldberger to find out more about another one of New York City's lost spaces. Two revolving doors, two side doors, 22 steps up to the lobby. Welcome to the historic Roosevelt Hotel. I had walked past it before, in those early days in New York City, where I got off the line from Poughkeepsie at Grand Central and walked in a daze down 45th Street in Midtown. The idea of staying in a hotel in Manhattan always seemed like something only the rich did. But the COVID-19 pandemic did the Roosevelt Inn, and prices for a room dropped. I took advantage of the situation when I found out the Roosevelt Hotel was closing and stayed a night there back in October. Even though my room was small, and the ballroom, restaurant, bar, and rooftop were closed because of the pandemic, the lobby still offered a little bit of bygone glamour with its chandelier. My interpretive reading of the hotel safety tips to give a glimpse into who the typical patron is of the Roosevelt Hotel. So under never leave valuables in a hotel room, never leave pocketbooks, wallets, cameras, or, or jewelry on the dresser, especially when there is a large amount of visitor traffic during meetings, etc. This will prevent a loss to persons who can, quote, ease into the room under the guise of a, quote, friendly visitor. What I found was a place that had one foot in the past and the other dangling over a ledge. Its purpose was misunderstood. For nearly 100 years, the Roosevelt Hotel was a place where politicians, celebrities, and regular Joes just like me have rested their head for the night. The hotel was where, in 1948, former New York Governor Thomas Dewey watched vote tallies come in in one of the greatest upsets in presidential election history. I've sent the following wire to President Truman. My heartiest congratulations to you on your election and every good wish for a successful administration. It was where Guy Lombardo led the hotel's house band through Auld Lang Syne every New Year's Eve, first on the radio, then on TV, for decades, beginning in 1929. The hotel's also been the backdrop for numerous movies and TV shows. I spoke with Pulitzer Prize-winning architecture critic Paul Goldberger about this history and the hotel's architectural significance. I mean, the, the only positive thing we can think about it is that because right now uh, the, there's very little likelihood that somebody's going to want to tear it down and put up another office building on that site, given the nature of the market and the real estate market today uh, and how much excess office space we have in this COVID age. 
um, it'll probably just sit there. COVID-19 devastated hotels nationwide. And the Roosevelt Hotel had been struggling for a long time anyway, because it's an old hotel that couldn't offer the high-end luxury of many of the greatest historic hotels, like the Plaza, or the modern amenities of a newer hotel, says Paul. Today, people want a little more space. They, they definitely want more light. You know, uh, those old hotels, uh, and the Roosevelt is a good example of that. You know, a lot of the rooms just looked into air shafts and not even out to the street. So they, they were always in shadow and never any sunlight, which is sort of sad and depressing, I would think. The Roosevelt Hotel opened in 1924 and was designed by the architecture firm of George B. Post and Sons. George B. Post was a prominent architect, one of many around that period in the early decades of the 20th century, who did what you could, I guess, call eclectic architecture. It was sort of, you know, uh, mixed up a certain amount of historical styles, sometimes just wove them together into an interesting new composition. He's probably most famous for the New York Stock Exchange down on Wall Street, which is one of his buildings. He, he was not primarily a hotel architect, but those people in those days prided themselves, most of them, on being very versatile and could design almost anything. I think another thing about the Roosevelt that's interesting is that it shows how important the whole idea of public space was in those days. So, you know, there's a very grand multi-story lobby that really gave you a feeling when you walked in that you were in a very special place. Uh, the rooms themselves, I think, are probably, you know, pretty ordinary and small and not distinguished. Uh, I think the expectation was you weren't going to spend a huge amount of time in your room. And uh, the bedrooms were to sleep, and that was about it. So in many of the very grand hotels in that period, uh, the bedrooms are surprisingly ordinary. At one point, the Roosevelt Hotel was connected to Grand Central Terminal through an underground passage. They covered up all the tracks around the station and said, you know, we can actually build buildings on top of this, and we can make a whole coordinated development that connects to the station. So office buildings, hotels, uh, all kinds of things, even some apartment buildings originally. And uh, almost all of them were magnificent. They all kind of fit together in a certain architectural style. They were you know, somewhat influenced by the Beaux-Arts, like Grand Central itself. And they were all a little different from each other, so it wasn't boring, but they were also a lot the same, so it kind of connected. And they had grand public spaces. The Biltmore probably was the most famous because it had a beautiful clock hanging in its lobby at the center. And people used to say, meet me under the clock at the Biltmore was a famous meeting place. And uh, the Roosevelt wasn't quite as fancy. It was probably like one notch below in terms of luxury, but it's the one that survived the longest. It's possible when things turn around that somebody could buy the Roosevelt Hotel restore and renovate it, and reopen it as a hotel, Paul says. I mean, it would be wonderful if somebody post-COVID, uh, when travel returns and things become active again, could restore it and give it another shot. Because I think today we're, we're more appreciative of you know, great pieces of architecture like this than we have been at certain other times in our lives. It's a shame the hotel closed its doors on December 18th. 
I'm not going to say they close their doors forever, because I do think there's a good chance the hotel will bounce back in some way, shape, or form. But for now, let's raise our glasses in a toast and say thanks for the memories. And we bring you news from the neighborhoods. On this program, Sarah Montague took in fashion trends and outdoor dining near her Greenwich Village studio. She also brings us some moments from an Asian American anti-hate rally held on February 27th. The rally's sense of urgency was reinforced by the killing on Tuesday, March 16th of eight people in spas in the area of Atlanta. Media has reported that most were women of Asian descent. The shooting suspect Atlanta police have in custody, Robert Aaron Long, has denied that his actions were racially motivated. But citizens, community leaders, and the White House have responded with broad comments about anti-Asian violence. If one's going to steal a good idea, the New Yorker is the best place to start. I've been observing the outdoor dining trends in the village for some time, but as winter rose up like a banshee, I was amazed to see that determined diners were still hanging in there. So I was delighted to find a talk of the town feature in the New Yorker issue of January 25th on this very topic. It noted that in the face of sub-zero temperatures, intrepid diners were wearing their sleeping bags to dinner. But how to make them chic? Easy. Call up Norma Kamali and get some fashion tips. This fun feature prompted me to take a closer look at my locals. And yes, I did spy some sleeping bags. Kamali recommends cinching them. But the general impression I got was that the ski slopes of Vale, Aspen, Telluride, and Killington have made their way to the streets of New York. Dining now involves faux fur trimmed duffel coats, beanies and balaclavas, and snuggly blankets with logos provided by the restaurants. But instead of hot chocolate, there are cocktails. It's as if the Sierra Club had collaborated with Zagats. And I'm not just an observer. On Wednesdays, I make my way to my old local, the Cowgirl Hall of Fame on Hudson Street, and order a blanket and a frozen margarita. For Local Switchboard NYC, I'm Sarah Montague. Our neighborhoods represent our communities, and they also sometimes represent our communities in peril. On February 27th, Federal Plaza and nearby Thomas Paine Park became a neighborhood of protest as hundreds of demonstrators turned out for a rise up against Asian hate rally. Media have reported a rise in hate crimes against Asians, linking attacks to pandemic generated fear and prejudice. Demonstrators included individual citizens, elected officials, and representatives of concerned organizations like the Asian American Foundation, which organized the rally, and the New York Immigration Coalition. Murad Awada is a co-executive director of the New York Immigration Coalition, a critical ally in our work to make our immigrant community more visible and more empowered. When I say safety is in our community, our safety is in community. Our safety is in community. We are that community. Hate has no bounds, and we've seen it peak its head in New York City and New York State time and again. A little over a year ago, we saw a rise in anti-Semitic attacks here in New York City, and we stood up. We rallied and condemned the hate the Jewish community was facing. Before that, the Muslim community 
was facing hate, and we rallied and condemned that. Bigotry, racism, xenophobia has no place in our communities. More than a year ago, we called out the growing signs of vile anti-Asian bigotry already on the rise. Safety as a right was a rallying cry. When I say what do we want, we're going to say safety. What do we want? Safety. What do we want? Safety. When do we want it? Now. When do we want it? Now. There's a certain irony in locating a protest against bigotry and violence in a park named for 18th century writer Thomas Paine. He was a distinguished humanist and activist known for such titles as common sense, rights of man, and the American crisis. For Local Switchboard NYC, I'm Sarah Montague. Our team is host and executive producer, me, Jordan Gospore, co-founders Sarah Montague, Betsy Lakin, and Heather Chin. Our segment on the Asian American Rally was recorded by Anoka Venugopal. You're part of our neighborhood now. So if there's a local story you think is important, let us know at localswitchboardnyc at gmail.com.